Welcome to Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships from the Pardes Institute in Jerusalem. I'm Rabbi Brent Spodek, and I will be joining you to explore the Jewish tradition and how it might help us love the people in our lives better. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend Shoshana Bloom, who's based in London. Shoshana helps the helpers, you know, the ones Mr. Rogers said to look for when things are scary and overwhelming. She works with good people who feel stuck and overwhelmed. She's a London-based ICF-certified coach and a clinical hypnotherapist who uses a whole range of modalities to empower clients to move forward, feel more confident, and have a greater impact without compromising their health, happiness, and well-being. Shoshana is also an introvert who loves people, something I identify with greatly, and feels giddily happy when people's pets pop up in Zoom meetings. She believes that Buffy, Marvel, and Dungeons and & Dragons and other forms of geek culture are the perfect lens through which to study leadership and how to human better. Shoshana is a proud senior Schusterman fellow, which is where I have the pleasure of knowing her from. And I will say Shoshana is one of the most insightful and delightful people to talk with about what it is to be human. And I'm so excited to be in conversation with you today on the show, Shoshana. So welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here too. Well, great. So... What I'm hoping we can look at today is a text from Likutei Moharan, which is the teachings of Rebbe Nachman. So just a, a quick word on Rebbe Nachman before we jump into the text. Uh, so Rebbe Nachman is one of the most unique of the Hasidic masters. He lived in the late 18th century, uh, 1772 to 1810. He was the great grandson of the founder of the Hasidic movement. But he writes about feelings and emotion and what we would now call psychology in ways unlike almost any other thinker of his era. And I'm hoping that some of his thoughts can be useful for us in figuring out how to be in touch with our own feelings and how to be in touch with the feelings of others. So this teaching comes from Likutei Moharan, the second part. It's uh, teaching 23. And, and this is what he teaches. It's all by way of stories. So he says, regarding joy, regarding simcha, sometimes when people are happy and dancing, They grab somebody who's standing outside the circle, who's depressed and gloomy. And against their will, they challenge this person to join into the circle of dancers. Despite their resistance, they encourage him to be happy along with them. Right? Can you sort of imagine this? A bunch of people dancing in a circle, trying to bring somebody who's off on the side into the circle. He goes on to say, it is the same with happiness. When a person is happy, gloom and suffering stand aside. But now he shifts and he says, even better than grabbing someone or almost forcing someone into the circle of dancers, even better is to gather the courage to actually pursue the gloom and introduce it to the joy such that the gloom itself turns into joy. He goes on to say, a person should transform gloom and suffering into joy. Like when you come to a party and it cheers you up, it makes you feel better. He goes on to say, that this is the nature of sadness and sighing, to stand aside when there's joy, right? To stand on the margins. But what you actually have to do is not let them stand on the margins. You have to chase after those feelings. You have to catch up to them. You have to reach them. You have to introduce them into joy and you have to transform them. Then he goes on to say, but there are types of sadness and sighing that are from the other side, from the sitra achra, from the dark side of the force. I say jokingly, but actually not so jokingly. 
sometimes there are these feelings from, from the other side that can't become a vehicle for holiness. And so they flee from joy. And so I'm, I'm struck in this text in this dynamic of hard feelings, right? I have them, everybody has them, you have them. Gloom, sadness, bitterness, anger. What do we do with these feelings? What do you, what do you make of all this? What a piece of text. And it's such an interesting place to jump off from because there's so much in there. <laughs> the first thing is, that sounds great. Yeah, we should all be happy. Isn't that amazing? One of the things that jumps out to me is, well, if only it was just so easy to transform my gloom. <laughs> you know, like that whole, like, turn your frown upside down. It's like, well, oh, is that all I need to do? Right. Oh, okay. That's great. <laughs> it's like somebody saying, hey, relax, relax. Oh, okay. No problem. Now I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know, so many people, like so many people in various professions, especially those in the therapies, we'd all be out of work if it was just as easy as uh, <laughs> just smile. You know, just be happy. <laughs> right. And so obviously it's not so easy to simply transform sadness into joy. But I want to even take a step back from there because it seems here that Rebbe Nachman is saying something that, that I actually think I agree with, but I don't think it's a given that we should do something with these harder feelings. And I'm using that sort of as a bucket term, right? We should transform them or chase them or pursue them but he doesn't seem to be saying we should just let them be, right? And if you're feeling sad, feel sad. If you're feeling angry, feel angry, right? He's in some ways suggesting or even saying explicitly that we should do something with those hard feelings. I'm wondering, do you think he's right? Do you think we should be in some ways changing these hard feelings or trying to? Again, I, I just think that if it was so easy just to change something, and I think that's something that quite often we might want to do when we're going through those hard emotions. But those emotions and the hard ones, they exist. And we can't necessarily just will them out of existence. They're important. And what this brings to mind is also the Pixar film, Inside Out. Uh -huh. It's like, well, actually, kind of, you know, sadness played a pretty important role in the holistic approach to the child's emotions. It's been a few years since I've seen that movie. I remember seeing it with my kids, but I don't quite remember it. Can you just remind me how that movie works? Sure. So it's the story of a young child who moves city. She doesn't particularly want to, but you know, she's a child. She doesn't have much say in it. And really like the, the movie is about how her emotions are being processed and they're represented by these uh, kind of projections of her inside her mind. And there's, you know, we've got joy, we've got sadness, we've got anger, we've got all of the various emotions and how they work in relation to each other whether they're in competition with each other, whether they are supporting one another, and what does it mean to embrace all of those different emotions at the right time, in the right way, and in the right space. But crucially, I don't know that anyone else gets to define necessarily what the right way, what the right time, what the right space. We can look for guidance, but it's, it's such a complex issue. We are really complex. Yeah, for sure, we're really complex. And I really appreciate you bringing in the idea that it's not just what the feelings are, but when and how. I'm struck in the parable that Rabbi Nachman gives. I'm thinking about these people dancing. And one of the things that comes to mind is 
The idea of them dancing, and if you've, you know, spent any time in a traditional Jewish dancing setting, like a wedding or something like that, most of the dances are circular, right? It's not like, you know, going to a club now where it's one or maybe two people sort of dancing in their own zone. And I'm, I'm sort of imagining, like, the circle of people spiraling around the room, right, going around and around, and this one person, or, you know, the metaphor is pretty transparent about this, this one feeling off to the side, feeling gloomy, feeling sad, feeling like they don't quite fit in. And one of the things that strikes me with the dance is that since it goes in a circle, I'm sort of imagining somebody coming to me and being like, hey, Shoshana, you want to come and join the dance now? No? Okay, cool. I'm going to go dance around the room. I'm going to be back in, uh, you know, whatever, the next revolution. And I'll check in again, right? You want to dance now? And the sense that there's both the question of what's the right thing to do And as you said, when is the right way to do it and how is the right way to do it? And I I sort of appreciate this idea of them coming around like like the revolutions of a wheel and needing to check in on the one hand saying, do you want to come and join in now? But also not taking no for an answer, not pushing, not forcing, not, you know, kidnapping them. But, you know, having a slight preference, a slight pressure towards the positivity. Mm -hmm. Right. So he's not saying, oh, you don't want to dance. OK, fine. Go sit in the corner and drink yourself. You know, like there's a slight preference to come join dance, but also a faith, a confidence that if it's not this turn of the cycle, maybe the next one. Mm. What, do you, what do you make of that? So I, I love that idea. I love that idea of bringing that circle and that cycle into it. And that I mean, it can go to the heart of what it means to feel like we belong and that we're welcome somewhere. And Sometimes the first time that you are invited into something, it's really hard and you don't know and the moment's gone. And I've been at weddings before where I don't necessarily know lots of people there. And then someone kind of, you know, splits the circle slightly and they're like, beckon me in. And I'm like, I don't really know. I don't know. This is my place. And the circle goes round. And then I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to be in there. And then comes back again. And maybe it's the same person. Maybe it's somebody else, but they invite me into that circle. And I think there is something really, really beautiful about knowing that there are other opportunities and that you are not therefore bound and defined by your initial response. Mm. There is that space to be able to turn around and say, it wasn't for me right then, for whatever reason, but actually now, yeah, I'm ready or I'm, I'm more ready. So I think there is something really, really, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but the knowing that it's not kind of, you know, one chance, that's it, you're out. You said no, done. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting when we think of things as like fluid and when we think of them as fixed, right? I'm thinking on the one hand, this might be dating myself, but the Eminem song from 8 Mile, right? You know, you've got one chance And the whole song is about you're nervous, you know, palms are sweaty, you know, vomit on the sweater already, right? But you've got one chance and you step up and take that chance. On the one hand, I think there's a tremendous power of that in the moments when I'm afraid of something, I'm nervous, I'm going to, you know, do something. It's like, all right, this is it. Go for it, right? This is the chance. But exactly that thinking, that thinking that's saying push, go, is often difficult in relationships and recognizing that that exactly what, you know, in the song where it's like, you, you're, you're going to take this one shot. In relationships, 
it's not one shot. In fact, almost by definition, the idea of being in a relationship, either with another person or with yourself, is that it's fluid, it's growing, right? And one of the ways I'm aware, I mean, I'm aware of this in my own life, most painfully, and aware of this in the life of couples I work with all the time, how we tell stories about the other people in our lives and then lock them like, like a fossil, locked in amber into who this person is and don't give enough space to do exactly what you said, to be like, oh, this is where I'm at now. And now maybe I'm going to be someplace different, right? That there's going to be some growth. There's going to be some movement, not because one is better than the other, but what's right in one moment isn't what's right in another moment. It's not, you've got one chance and you've got to do it. There's a flow, there's a dynamism to it. And it's actually, as an aside, it's so funny because for for a long time, and now I feel like I might bring it back, that song was <laughs> my go. I have a playlist for like when I need to get into a certain kind of, I don't know, like state of mind before a certain call or a certain piece of work or something like that, or getting something done, that song featured heavily in that playlist. But now I'm kind of rethinking it. Great song, but also one shot. Like, is it? Is that the case? But um, on a, I guess also like on a more serious level, I'm thinking of times where I felt that gloom and my partner would say to me, um, do you want a hug? And my go-to response, nothing to do with them at all. My go-to response was like, no, I don't need anything. That's not what I need. But that is what I want. And then, but I have that opportunity, the circle goes round and I'm able to then say, or he will come back to me and he'll say, what do you need? And I'll be like, I need that hug. And, you know, it wasn't that one shot. I didn't necessarily know how to say yes in that moment, Mm. but that wasn't it. It, you know, it wasn't over. It was, and I think that communication and that understanding and that appreciation, but I, I also think that with the circle coming round, it's not necessarily about the greatest of respect, Rabbi Nachman. (laughs) I don't know that it is necessarily about grabbing someone and bringing them in. How can we acknowledge where that person is and meet them where they're at as well, rather than this is the circle of happiness. You now need to be in the circle of happiness, but you're not feeling that. You're not in the circle right now. What do you need? Like, what do you want? We come from our own perspective. So what I think someone else needs can be so well-intentioned, but I'm projecting what I need, not necessarily what they need. Where am I in that point? Like, where are they? Where's that circle? What's it doing? Question is about, in that story, is that to change them or to say, you're good where you are. You don't have to stay where you are. You can move. That's your choice. But when is it for us to change somebody? And when is it for us to just say, you know what? Where, wherever you are right now, you are perfect. And I see you and I appreciate you for who you are. And I don't need you to change. Yeah. I, f- I want to agree with that so wholeheartedly. And I so struggle with that. <laughs> Here's what I'm thinking of. Two, two stories separated by about 12 years. 12 years ago, yeah, just about 12 years ago, I did a long silent meditation retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Western Massachusetts. And I would do these long walking meditations out in the forest. And I recall very clearly and very unhappily the extent to which I was on these walks and I was rehearsing some anger, some bitterness, some conflict that I had with someone. 
And I was feeling it. And those feelings felt powerful and strong and real. And it felt like as I was walking, I was just digging the grooves of those stories deeper and deeper into my mind. And so fast forward uh, 12 years to just uh, literally just this past Shabbos. I had a moment with my oldest kid where they said something that rang the bells of some old stale fights I had had with my wife years ago. But there was some glimmer of that conflict in, in what my eldest kid said. And I felt myself getting angry, getting defensive, you know, picking up all of those, the, all of those dynamics of the argument with my wife from some time prior. And I responded to my oldest kid a little more sharply than I wish I had. You know, nothing terrible. I didn't, you know, throw a plate at them, nothing like that. But you know, a little more, a little more harshly than I wished I had. And I noticed that. I was like, okay, this is not where I want to be. I'm going to go take a shower. I'm going to get dressed for Shabbos. And then we'll come down and we'll sort things out. And I'm thinking of this because on the one hand, I think about what I was feeling walking the woods in Western Massachusetts, and I was feeling angry, right? That's really where I was. The anger was there. I was feeling the anger. And at a certain level, why not just be angry all the time? Except I don't want to live that way. I don't want to be around people who live that way. I certainly don't want to be around people who live that way more than I need to be. So fast forward to the incident just uh, this past Shabbos. Again, I felt anger coming up. What do you know? I'm a middle-aged white guy. Anger is a feeling I can access pretty easily. So the anger comes up, but I can identify, I've got no reason to be angry at my kid. And I don't want to be angry. And I don't want to be bringing anger to my, to my family Shabbos table. So I want to shift that. And so on the one hand, what I love about what you're saying, and I want to applaud about what you're saying is like, no, where you're at is great. And that is super. And what you're feeling is is what you're feeling, right? With no judgment. And to an extent, for sure, I agree with that. I would never want to be like, nope, it's time to be happy. You have to be happy. But I know for me, and I'm wondering if this is, um, if, if this is true for you and true for the folks you work with, that those feelings can sometimes generate their own forward momentum and feed on themselves. So that more I tell the story about how this guy did me wrong, the angrier I get and the angrier I get. It. And I don't feel comfortable being like, okay, but that's what you're feeling. Just, just, you know. So how do you navigate? How do you think about that? Oh, so I think, I think actually it's coming back to the original Rabbi Nachman story that you shared. How so? It's that circle coming around and how we check in on ourselves outside of the circle as well. And so outside of the circle at that moment in time is angry me, bitter really frustrated me. And, you know, there are times when that is okay, where you need to be like, you know what, either I'm justified thinking this, or I need to think this through and I need to work through it. But like, I can't ignore that this thing has really made me so furious or really, really hurt me. And when the circle comes around again, there's that opportunity to be able to think, all right, so what's changed? Has anything changed? I have an opportunity to look at this from a different perspective. Now I have an opportunity to kind of move from outside the circle into the circle. And in this case, I don't think that moving into that circle is like I'm moving into this space of pure joy and happiness, but shifting from that feeling of like, what are you when you're outside the circle? You're stuck. So like moving from that feeling of being stuck. And I think Sometimes it can be really hard to sit there and sit with that feeling or that emotion 
and try and understand what's behind it. Like, where is that coming from? And often we can't do that on our own. It's really difficult because we're caught up in it. It's something that being in conversation with somebody else and having them reflect or replay some of the things that you've just said can sometimes make you think, oh, okay, I don't want to be in that place anymore. Therefore, what do I need to do? How do I need to shift? And I think that so often this needs to be in relationship with somebody else. And I think that whether that's in relationship to somebody professional, but also with the people in our lives, it's having someone, look, I'm somebody who, (laughs) I feel my emotions. (laughs) And sometimes I need to just be really like, in that moment, I need to be hurt. I need to feel that hurt because it's very, very real to me. And I need to be met with that. And sometimes meeting me with that and accepting that's how I feel. And trusting that's how I feel allows me to move beyond it. Mm, mm. Validating scene. Yeah, that validating feels really important. And I so appreciate you pointing out when the person is gloomy and sad on the side, they're by themselves and the people are dancing. So the sense that one of the things that is being pointed at in the story is, yeah, being in relationship being in connection with people, either friends, partners, professional relationships, like a therapist, a counselor, or something like that, a pastoral relationship with a, you know, a member of the clergy. And that when you're in that relationship, part of your role is actually just validating people's feelings. Like, wow, you're feeling sad. How is that for you? Right. That's, that's tough. That can be challenging. You're feeling angry. Yeah. I can see you're feeling angry. Where's that coming from? Just validating the feelings is huge. Hmm. But I think that where we need to be careful is that validating and enabling someone to feel seen, Mm -hmm. I think is so, so powerful. Like we all want to be seen. Being seen is part of being valued. And what can sometimes happen is that we can then reinforce Mm. what that person is going through. And I don't think that it's necessarily our role at that point. The way you, you framed it just then was like accepting you know, I see, I see that you're really hurt right now rather than, oh my God, I can't believe they did that to you. Uh You know, because there are times when that can make us feel really good. Yes. If the only way that we're being validated is that we're being almost indulged with it, that makes it really hard to move on from as well. And it's, it's a safe place. It's really safe to be like, yeah, that's why I'm so mad. You should be mad. Oh, I feel mad. Da, 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 da. Because that's also the connection that we want. Like we want to be in community with each other. And when we form that tribe of like, I can't believe that person did that, that's safety. It's not only great and healthy, but it's safety. There's uh right. There's a line from the Talmud, nothing has done more to bring Jews to Torah than the turn of Achashverosh's ring, right? Mm-hmm. Which is to say, More than anything else, a common enemy draws people together. You and I might feel like we're closer in that moment because we've made all these other folks the enemy and that's allowed us to bond together. But that tends to be a pretty uh, cheap and brittle form of bonding. Yeah. So part of being responsible in this, right, in some ways part of loving people well, is validating them, but not necessarily reinforcing 
the stories they're telling that are damaging, mm. right? And giving them some space. And that's part of what I appreciate about the way Rabbi Nachman sets up the story. Part of the Hebrew is about a master of force. And I actually love the language of that because it's to be a master of force is to know how much force to use when, right? The force you need to open a jar of pickles is not the force you need to change the tire on a car, right? And to be a master of force involves knowing the right type of force for the jar of pickles and the right type of force for the lug nuts on a car. And so when somebody is feeling this, you know, in a hard place, a wise use of force is that sort of gentle invitation. Hey, you're ready to step out of that. Hey, can you meet somewhere else? Not overusing force, you know, what's wrong with you? Get out of there. Why are you, right? That, that would be using uh, the car level force on the pickle jar. Mm. You know, there's a subtlety, a nuance to being masterful in our use of force, right? One of the things that really jumps out at the story here is that I don't think that dancing is a metaphor. At very least, it's not just a metaphor, right? So often, for me at least, when I want to change my headspace, right? When I want to change my emotional reality, the way to do that is through my body. And I say this, I'm a rabbi, I'm a writer, I'm, I, I live in words. But, you know, it wasn't incidental in that story I told that I, I told my kid, I'm going to go take a shower, right? Just do something to change my physiological reality for just a little bit. Dancing, you know, I mean, I think at the core of it, actually dancing can make you happy. If you start out not happy at a certain level, you put on some music and move, you can feel better. Running can make me feel better. And I know nothing about hypnotism. I'm wondering what are these different modalities we might use like dance, but maybe other things as well to come to our feelings through ways other than through our words, but through our bodies. Well, I think we, we can circle back to like what it means in terms of, now there's hypnotism and there's clinical hypnotherapy and hypnotism is like, again, all roads lead back to Rabbi Nachman is they're like, you're going to cluck like a chicken, you know, it's uh, you know, that kind of person on stage and everything. Got it. That's not what you do. No, <laughs> no, only because that'd be my greatest fear. <laughs> one thing that to me, I think. Um, so with hypnotherapy, firstly, no one can be hypnotized unless they want to. So like, you don't want to be the chicken, you're not going to be the chicken. It doesn't matter. <laughs> who you are, how good you are at this. Like you really can't do it, but there is that responsibility there. And it's really about, we have a surface level and we've got that subconscious level. And sometimes it's the surface level just drives us so much. And so with hypnotherapy, it's about just kind of giving space to kind of look at things a little bit more from that subconscious level and to get through some of the barriers that we might have. I agree with so much of what you're saying, but you said kind of, well, it can really change your mood to dance, to go for a run, to, you know, go take that shower. And I think what's fascinating about that is there's a really good reason for that. <laughs> We've evolved to come you know, a long way from like kind of, you know, our early days, kind of when we were on the kind of, you know, in the Serengeti, I guess, where we have these very real threats to us. You know, it's like, ah, there's a lion, you know, I need to get away from this lion. I've got various responses at this point. I can fight the lion. Probably not going to go too well. <laughs> you know, I can freeze. Also, probably not going to go well and make for a short story. Or I can go with flight. I can run. Now we understand also there's also the fawn response, which is the like, how do you maybe like flatter mm -hmm. your way up? Placate? 
yeah, to kind of placate, to find a way to, I guess, yeah, in relationship to that person or that line. In this case, again, you're not going to placate the line so easily by telling them how beautiful they are or what an incredible mane they have. It's not going to work. So we're left with one option here at this point, you know, flight. We have to run to safety. And when we've run to safety, we've found that place of safety. Our body knows that something has shifted because it has, you know, like when you're in a really stressful situation and you're just like, after you're like, I can't believe I said that thing. That was the stupidest thing to say. Why did I say that? It's because at that point in a stressful situation, your body and your nervous system is like, all right, priorities here. I don't need to think at this point. I need to move. I need that adrenaline. I need to run faster than I have ever run before. I need to run further than I've run before. I've ever run before because I've got to get to a place of safety. It doesn't matter what kind of what thoughts are going through your head and cognitively, like you know, kind of, am I running in a good fashion? Da 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 da. Whatever. It's like no. I just need to get out there. So it sounds like part of what you're saying is that. At some level, we feel fear and then we have a bodily response, right? We see the lion, we feel afraid, and then we run away. Hmm. But it also sounds like part of how we learn we're okay is the perceptions of our body, right? It's not just our, what we might think of as our cognitive perceptions. I see the lion, I hear the lion, right? But actually the interior experience, right? If I've just run really hard and I'm still breathing, that must mean I'm okay because I'm not Hmm. being eaten by a lion right? That moving in that way opens something else up. I don't think the fact that they're talking about dance is accidental or incidental. I've certainly had that experience with dance, both in Jewish settings, in five rhythm settings and other settings where dancing, being in my body more fully, almost lets me shut down the cognitive, verbal, meaning-making part of my mind and reduces my inclination to keep telling stories and just feel my body in that moment. It opens other things up. Yeah. Our bodies, even though we've evolved so much, our bodies don't necessarily know the difference between the lion that's chasing us or the scary, stressful thought that we're having. Right. It doesn't know the difference. Yeah. But what the body does know is go back to where I'm again, you know, kind of palms sweaty, you know, was it like knees weak, arms heavy? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Something's happened. I have moved from here. I'm in some, I'm in a safe space. Now, by dancing or by exercising, we're giving our bodies exactly that same signal and we're giving our nervous system that same signal. Like, I escaped. I got through it. It's okay. But like, there is something even more beautiful to, I think, the, that notion of dancing. And, you know, I guess that is where it links into the, to the hypnotherapy side is that we go into a trance-like state. Like with hypnotherapy, you know, you don't need someone else to necessarily do it for you. We go into trance-like states all the time. You know, we always have those moments of like, oh, well, you know, I've just been reading this book and I was like lost in this book or I was lost in this show or whatever it might be. And dancing and running also, you get into that, like you switch off cognitively and you just, you can feel different as a result. I mean, the playlist that I was talking about before is like, I get up and I move to it. I need to shake it out. We're going to have to trade playlists. I'll I'll share my running playlist. You've got to share that list with me. Everybody should have, well, not everybody should have. I would invite people to always consider having a playlist that they put together that enables them to experience the emotions that they need to experience. Now, sometimes that is about, 
I need to feel pumped up and happy and I am going to dance around. I am such a fan of the one person kitchen party. <laughs> like I do that a lot of the time. And we also know that there are those points where, you know, I feel sad. I'm going to watch a sad movie. I'm going to listen to a sad song. So music and dancing enable us to tap into the emotions or to move through the emotions if that's what it is that we need. Absolutely. You know, I do a lot of work with couples on emotionally intelligent communication and help them work with their feelings in a different way. And my gift for the couples who I help get married is a a, a little plastic button that's called the 30 second dance party. And it's not Bluetooth. It's not internet. It's not anything. There's just a button and you just hit it and it says 30 second dance party. And then it just starts playing music for 30 seconds. And it's amazing. Adults, children, I've done this in meetings. All right, just get up and move. And it shifts, it shifts your emotional reality. Yeah. I, firstly, I won that button. All right. <laughs> but but also with some of the people I work with through the coaching relationship, part of it is like, all right, let's, what is it that you need? Because when we're in the moment, especially when it's a harder, more challenging feeling, I don't want to say a negative feeling, but you know, like it's that, the feelings that challenge us. Those are the hardest points for us to think, oh, well, what I need to do right now is da 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 You know, like you're in that moment. You can't think so easily about this is what I need to do, but you can prepare in advance. So like being able to be like, all right, when I feel this way, this is what I need. And I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to put that together beforehand, whether that's like, you know, so it's so all my clients. And I love this because it's so visual. They will get one of those, you know, a mason jar and they'll fill it with colorful post-it notes. And on each post-it note will be either a reminder of when they felt really confident and really happy or something that they can do that makes them feel good or whatever it might be. So they don't have to think at that moment in time. They're like, I'm going to go to my jar and I'm going to pick out this thing and I'm going to have a happy memory or I'm going to have a prompt about something that is not saying my feelings right now are not valid. It's just, I want to I wanna get in the circle. Yeah. I've yeah. made that choice. I want to get in the circle. What do I need to get into that circle? Because it's not always easy to do that. Amen. So there's so much more to talk about, but we're going to have to wrap up here. Before we go, this is something I do in my Shabbos table every Friday night. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited to do it with you. We invite everyone at the Shabbos table to share their pegs. So a moment from the recent past when you were proud, a moment when you were embarrassed, and a moment when you were grateful. Now, at my table, there are a lot of us, so we have to go very quick. So it's in that spirit. I, I invite you in 90 seconds or less Recent past, proud, recent past, embarrassed, recent past, grateful. Oh, you know what? Well, this is actually super easy. Great. Um, <laughs> this is the first time that I've actually said yes to being on a podcast. Love podcasts, listen to them all the time, always say no to them. So I'm proud that I said yes to this. I'm proud to be in the space with you. Embarrassed, I think, will come because I'm like, did I say that? Oh, I can't believe I said that. Um, and grateful, grateful to be in this conversation with you because this is a great space and I'm grateful for the conversation and I'm grateful for the friendship. Well, the feeling is very, very much mutual. Shoshana, I'm grateful for you. I'm so grateful you made the time to be here. And I'm so glad we got a chance to learn some Rebbe Nachman together. Thanks for joining us. 
You can learn more about Good Jewish Lover, the Torah of Relationships, and learn about other in-depth learning opportunities at pardes.org.il. And you can find me, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, on Instagram and Facebook, or get in touch at brent at pardes.org. Please share your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or texts you'd like us to explore. Special thanks to David Gutbazal and Jordan Steifman of Pardes, and Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab for audio engineering. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to learning with you next time about how we can all work to become good Jewish lovers.